Hello, and welcome to What I'd Say presents Straight No Chaser One Shot. In part one of this four-part series, the group reminisces about their history, taking us through their college days. They then talk about how they got discovered by the world through YouTube, as well as discussing the wild ride along the way. We then discuss the 10-year anniversary of their classic album, Holiday Spirits, which gets reissued on November 16th, as well as their new album, One Shot, which comes out on November 2nd. I'm going to let the guys introduce themselves and let them start the fun. Hi, my name is Dave Roberts. Hey, it's Steve Morgan. Hey, this is Randy Stein. I'm Tyler Trapp. And we're Straight No Chaser. Back in the day, a bunch of us were in Singing Hoosiers Together, which is a show choir at Indiana University. And one guy in particular named Dan Ponce uh, wanted to put together an acapella group. We all kind of were loosely friends. We all knew each other from this uh, ensemble. And we decided we'd throw together a group mainly to sing for girls or any place we would be allowed to sing on campus. And just through the network within the choir, several of us talked and had a meeting and didn't really hold auditions per se. It was kind of a closed audition process and got the ball rolling from there. For the record, there was one guy who had to audition and that was me because I was a freshman. So I had to sing the high part for Africa in the music closet of the Singing Hoosier practice room. Did you really have to audition? In fairness, Steve, nobody knew you. I knew you because we lived on the same floor in the dorm, but other than that, nobody really knew who you were. So in exactly. fairness, that's, that's why. Otherwise, I think the rest of us got phone calls from Ponce. At least in my case, I was told I was singing baritone and when to show up for rehearsal. <laughs> I did not know that, Steve. That's interesting. Yeah. Lucky me. <laughs> we got together in Dr. Schwarzkopf's office for our first rehearsal. I think it was Longest Time. And what was the other one we rehearsed that day? The one that Ponce used to sing. One Fine Day? Yeah, oh, one, one Fine, fine day. day. One Fine Day. Yep. We just kind of snowballed from there, you know, just started singing around campus, like uh, Randy said. Um, and then our first concert was uh, in Alumni Hall. Randy, you have the date on that? November 3rd, 1997 was our first like headlining <laughs> concert. But our first performance was back at Dance Marathon in October of 1996. And I would assure you, there was some terrible music made on that stage. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow everybody enjoyed it. And we said, okay, I guess we should keep doing this. And uh, so we sang at every sorority, every dorm, I mean, every restaurant, any place anybody would listen to us. That was what we did. We just bust out a song. Yeah, I remember singing at a place called Damon's in college. And we were singing literally just for the people in the waiting room area just to get publicity. And there was a certain section of a song that had a pause in it. I believe it was like, and she's got to say, and then in the background, uh, Marlon, party of six. It was like, you know, in the middle of our, our song. So we sang anywhere and everywhere that would have us. And a lot of places that wouldn't. Oh, yeah. Do we want to talk about the East Coast gig? <laughs> it's probably time. <laughs> that was probably the worst of times. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah, in our second year, we went out to the East Coast. We'd set up just a couple of shows. We were doing an invitational out in Boston with a few groups. And then we were also going to be performing at Walt and at Patrick's high school. Didn't have a lot to do, but we were going to go out and have fun. We went to New York for a day, all, all this fun stuff. And then the day we were driving to and from Boston, we're going by the lovely town of Newburgh, New York. We all remember it fondly now. I don't think we'll ever forget it, actually. As we went by this one place, they had this giant sign out front that said, We have donuts. And well, being a bunch of knuckle-headed college students, we decided... We needed that sign. So we went to try to take it down, and we got run off. They called the cops on us, and uh, we were out hightailing it through the back of a mall, <laughs> as luck would have it, and, and got out. Then on the way back, one car, I think it was uh, three bases and myself, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it was Charlie, Randy, Patrick O'Shea, and me. We took off, and the other guys were in my car, and they said, we're going to get the sign, guys. We're like, just don't do anything stupid, guys. Just... We'll see you tomorrow, okay? The next day, we show up. It was already a foregone conclusion that stupidity was going to be involved. So the next morning, the three bases and me show up at Walt's High School for the show. And the other car doesn't show up. And so we wait around for 45 minutes. There's a full school assembly that's been called. And that's sitting there waiting to hear from us. And we can't cover a single song. That was about it. That's the extent. And so as we're walking out of the high school, I said... All right, does anybody know the the police number at, in Newburgh, New York? We got to get this sorted out. For the next two weeks, there was no admission of guilt. It was Steve's car broke down, we had to get it fixed. And then the evening we were at an acapella competition in St. Louis, Missouri. After we had, had won and found out we were going to Carnegie Hall, we're all going crazy. DR stands on top of the bed and goes, hey guys, two weeks ago, and goes through and tells the whole story. 
And that's when we got arrested, and that's why we missed the show. <laughs> so we so we drove all the way to the East Coast for one single solitary gig in, in Boston, and which ended up being in a classroom or something like that. And it's a story we'll never forget. No, we yeah, we got arrested in uh, Newburgh, New York. Uh, <laughs> the arresting officer, as it were. He was a huge fan. Yeah, yeah he is now. <laughs> he, he told us at the time that normally he would let it go with a warning, but he was working a double and happened to be the guy that was called in the morning to chase off a couple of punk college kids with Indiana plates. So he's like, you know, I'll let you go this morning, but I'm not letting you go tonight. We're put up in the finest accommodations of the... Uh, Newburgh, New York uh, police precinct. There were four cells there, one for each of us. We were not allowed a phone call. We were taken in front of the judge as shackles at about 7, 38 o'clock in the morning, about the time we were supposed to be addressing an assembly at <laughs> Waltz High School. The judge waxed eloquent for a while about how not smart it was for us to do that, but then eventually let us all go because none of us had any priors and we were all being <laughs> as respectful as you would imagine we would be in that situation. It was an experience for sure. The upside is I hear you get a very good breakfast sandwich at the Newburgh, New York uh, penitentiary or whatever. Sandwich, yeah. It was like a piece of stale bread and some butter. <laughs> Although when they were entering all of us, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention this part. When they were entering all of our information into the computers in Newburgh, they asked us in alphabetical order of last name if, uh, you know, they asked us what our names were, date of birth, all the, that information. And the last question they asked was, did we have any aliases? So, of course, Walt at the time changed his name since then but at the time his name was last alphabetically and of course we i think it was jerome that busted out laughing and said oh we call him fatty and the cop leans back with a big grin on his face and he goes f-a-t-t-y we're like that's it so walt's legal alias in the state of new york is fatty nice <laughs> 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 college overall for us was uh, a fantastic experience i mean this in a way we kind of joked became our major we spent more time probably rehearsing and performing than we did sometimes attending classes which even led some of us to leave the show choir that we formed in because we had more gigs and more opportunities for our own group than we did from the original show choir we spent a lot of our waking hours after classes between classes both doing the rehearsals, the performances, and also marketing, and then even eventually recording uh, some albums in college as well. One of our first opportunities to, to kind of go out and experience the acapella scene outside of the IU campus, we got a call. Uh, Dan was friends with some of the guys who went to uh, the University of Illinois. And we got a call from them. I think it was one day. It was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. They said, we've got a show tonight. One of the groups that we had invited for this invitational backed out. Can you guys be here? At this point, this is pre-text messaging and all that sort of thing. So it's just a phone tree going, all right, let's roll out. We're, we're leaving in two hours. Let's go, let's go, let's go. We rolled strong. We rolled like two or three cars, showed up, did our gig. It was our first time really kind of exploring, again, other, other groups and, and hearing what else was out there. Still my favorite quote of the evening was one of the guys who later on was definitely remiss for inviting us. He said, they came... They showed us up and they took our women. <laughs> we felt like real life pirates. <laughs> we crashed on couches. We like basically slept any place they let us sleep as the visiting group. And I remember the next morning getting up and a couple of the guys and I had crashed in somebody's apartment. We didn't know them. They were all still asleep. We got up to get our cars and get out of there. And we were like, wait a minute, who else is still here? Like who else is still on campus? Who didn't get a ride? Who's asleep in someone's house that we don't know about? And it was an adventure that morning just trying to track down. Well, I think I saw this guy fall asleep on this couch, but I don't remember that, what house that was that we were in. And of course, none of us had cell phones, so we couldn't track down anybody. We just knew that 10 of us were spread out on a random campus in Illinois, and it was a work to try to find anybody to make sure everyone got a ride back the four or five hour drive, whatever it was, back to, to Bloomington. Gosh, those were the days. I spent an entire night of sleep one time, spread eagle, on the middle of a party floor. I was definitely out before the party ended in Michigan the next year, just because that's where I fell asleep. Somebody woke me up about 8 a.m. said, come on, we got to go. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was life. <laughs> I think the story was probably before that. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the story probably culminates in us uh, uh, being, as I think Steve mentioned earlier, that we won the sectionals to make it to the finals of the collegiate acapella competition that were being held in Carnegie Hall that year. We all road tripped out to New York and we performed in Carnegie Hall. We were officially given second place 
but we found out afterwards that our scorecards were tied and that they gave it to the other group because nobody had ever heard of Straight No Chaser before. Yeah, we were two years old. The other group, I believe, was at least 50 years old. Men's Octet. Right. Yeah, it was their 50th anniversary, and we had a couple of the judges who were not happy with the public outcome of it and kind of came and privately told us what went on. And I believe after that, that competition went away for two or three years at least, took down the guy that had been running it, and I think they re renamed the whole competition and have a different different group of people running it now. Yeah, it was down for at least a year, and then we came back, sort of the, the next generation, or the first generation of... Straight No Chaser, when we had brought in Ryan and Mike and Pat Chudy and a couple other guys to replace a couple guys that had graduated and moved on. We had graduated, um, and as we were graduating, some of us took a couple extra years. I won't name names, two of whom are speaking on this right now. Uh, one might be speaking right, literally right now. You know, it's not important who really. Right, yeah. Uh, but a couple guys stuck around for whatever reason and helped uh, audition and bring on some new members. Uh, Ryan Allward and Mike Luganbill being two of those new members. When we graduated, they auditioned new members and we left the group as a legacy at the university, which was ultimately our sort of our original goal was to be able to come back 20 years and see a Straight No Chaser concert at the university. Yeah, so right. I think alumni of Straight No Chaser now number over 100 at least, which is oh, really yeah. cool. I think it's closer to 200 now. Is it? Wow. Yeah. That's kind of where, where my story begins. I would have been kind of quiet there because I am not a quote unquote original guy. I had heard about them in high school and, and was actually given a CD of Live at Alumni Hall when I was in high school. And a guy in my show choir said, listen, you like acapella, listen to these guys. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. This would be really cool to do. So I joined the group in uh, in 2003 and had a lot of the similar experiences that these guys did. To, uh, what they didn't tell you is they had made a name for themselves on campus. I mean, besides the basketball team, I would say the next most popular group is probably Straight No Chaser. You know, we were at, you know, sororities and every campus event, IU Sing and Little Five. And by the time I got there, they were this huge thing. And, you know, and, and all, you know, my generation, all our group wanted to do was to keep it there. So like I said, we had a lot of the same experiences going to different schools, invitationals and doing the national competitions and stuff. So yeah, that's that's all we tried to do is, is to keep their legacy going. And I did the same thing when I I graduated. I would say one of the key parts of, of our legacy and becoming a legacy was that we, towards the end of the original group's time, we became sponsored by the Alumni Association. The head of the Alumni Association was a gentleman named Jerry Tardy, and he saw one of our shows and said, these guys would be incredible ambassadors for the university. When they would have alumni events across the country, he would take us, parade us out there, let us sing a few songs. We travel light, just the voices. That's all we need. He would bring us along, and then we'd kind of do the meet and greets and, and talk, to, talk about the university, talk about what was going on on campus with alumni. And I think having that sponsorship, having somebody to kind of shepherd us through the especially those first few years of making the transition to new members, that was integral in, in maintaining the legacy of the group. Totally agree. All of us have a, a soft spot in our hearts for Jerry Tardy. He unfortunately passed away in the early 2000s, complications to cancer. He was integral in keeping the group together as a legacy at the university. All of us, for the most part, became, you know, what, functioning adults with quote unquote real jobs. Although some guys still got to kind of try to live the dream. Steve, for example, moved to New York, ended up on Broadway. So, Steve, you want to talk about that? I don't know that I care for not being called a functional adult, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> still so, functional. <laughs> When we first started having graduations, five of us went down to Atlanta. So it was me, Jerome, Charlie, Dan Ponce, and Mike Itkoff, who was also in the 2008 iteration of Straight No Chaser when we got back together. We were looking to do Pop Top 40 music. Got signed to RCA Urban for a time. Had some great meetings. Got to go sing at some cool places in Boston and New York and outside of Nashville and L.A. Then 9-11 happened. Napster all happened. All those sorts of things that kind of threw the recording industry into a funk, which it's still dealing with, I would say. So at that time, Charlie and I decided, hey, let's get out of here. Let's go to New York and, and try to do musical theater, which was something I think each of us individually had thought we would do from the get-go. So we went up there. Actually, Charlie and I were in a, a national tour of Susical the Musical together. The two of us, along with another IU grad, a good friend of ours, John Armstrong, we were the three Wickersham brothers, the antagonistic monkeys. Never has there been better typecasting. From there, just 
kind of kept doing things, you know, just in New York, it was all about trying to keep making forward progress. And I was very fortunate to get to do a couple of Broadway shows. One was the Beach Boys show. That was my Broadway debut was Beach Boys show, Good Vibrations, where now my party trick is I think I know about seven parts to every Beach Boys song. Then I did about two and a half years. That's about a thousand shows of Mamma Mia. So that's a lot of ABBA. But it was a great time. And then I moved out of New York, went back to Indiana to get my MBA when my wife was pregnant with our first child, who's now nine. It's crazy. That was right about the time that we got signed, right, with Atlantic. So it was uh, not a great time for you to be taking that kind of risk. (laughs) (laughs) It was not. It was not. It was one of the main reasons I I stepped away about a month before she was born. In my last show with Straight No Chaser, the professional group was on Christmas Day of 2008 when we sang for the Cleveland Cavaliers game. When Tyler was actually still in the group back in college, we had a a reunion where the the current group in the university had us back for a 10-year reunion in 2006. And knowing that was coming up, I did the work of digging out these old tapes that were originally taped or recorded on Betacam, which is not easy to find a Betacam machine. Also, then having to transfer it to another tape and getting it over onto a computer. I did that, though, and just threw up some clips on YouTube for us to kind of relive the college days from a concert that we did in 1998 that no one had ever seen or heard. So I threw that together as just kind of a thing for us. We went back to the university, had a great time, you know, singing with the, the current group. And these clips went online in April of 2006. By December of 2007, we'd hit 100,000 views on one clip in particular, which was the 12 Days of Christmas. And we were all kind of emailing back and forth and joking about, you know, what it could mean. And a video going viral on YouTube was a new thing at the time. Within another week or two, suddenly we hit a half a million, and then a million, two million, four million, and up to seven million in a couple of weeks' time in December of 2007. From there, we got a bunch of interesting, mostly sketchy contacts from labels that wanted to buy the rights to the music or, you know, wanted to license it. And all of it seems pretty not on the up and up. We all kind of joked about it and didn't really think much about it. And then I got a, an email from a, a very obscure YouTube name that was, you know, a couple of letters and a couple of digits. And he'd said, Hey, this is Craig from Atlantic Records. Uh, you know, can I give you a call sometime? And I gave him my phone number, you know, thinking it was along the same lines of all the other kind of contact we'd had. And on New Year's Day, 2008, Craig Kalman called me directly. I thought it was pretty much a prank because all the things he was talking about seemed all too good to be true and kind of like a, a dream come true. And I kept thinking to myself, which one of my friends can make their voice sound like this. Like, who's calling me? This isn't somebody from the label. And he said, let's get together. Let's have dinner in Los Angeles and talk about the options for this group. Can you get everybody back together and come to New York? And a couple of weeks later, we had the entire group fly to New York and we sang in the Atlantic main conference room there in in Manhattan. And I remember all of us were nervous because we hadn't really sung together in eight years or something like that, other than singing at each other's weddings or getting together for fun. I remember as we sang in their main offices, Craig is standing in the back with some other staff and he kind of, you know, has this very serious look, rubs his chin a little bit and then just walks out of the room. And you could just feel the energy just drain from all of us thinking, well, we just blew it. Well, you know, if if they were interested, they're no longer interested now. And we finished the song, got a small round of applause from the Atlantic staff that was in there. But at the end of it, Craig walked back in with his legal team and said, uh, all right, well, you know, who's your attorney? If you don't have an attorney, get one. We got to work out this deal and get this album done before Christmas season this year. And that's how it all, you know, got started for us. There's only a couple of guys that were actually married at that point. Actually, I think it was just Steve, right? Me? Stephen Charlie? Charlie wasn't married yet. I was married. I got married two years before. Walt was married. Walt was married and Ryan. Yeah, Ryan was married. He got married in like 2006. Charlie, I think, got married that within a month or two after that. It was like we were scheduling rehearsals around his wedding. You know, I'll have to let Steve speak to what the wives, how the wives felt about it. For the rest of us, like I I was working sort of a desk job in a cubicle right there in New York City. So after that These guys that had all flown in from out of town mostly and grabbed drinks and sort of celebrated and I had to go back to work. (laughs) Sucker. A free reunion in New York. We're like, all right, you know, get uh, free hotels and flights to New York. We all get to hang out. If, if nothing else comes of it, that that's cool on its own. In retrospect, DR, that was stupid. <laughs> Going back to work? <laughs> yeah. They, they paid me for a full year and a half after that okay, for, for okay. doing very, very little. Oh, my dad. <laughs> I was so checked out of that job. That was an interesting time in and of itself. We were putting the arrangements together ourselves. And then because everybody was still working their regular jobs, we decided we'd rehearse on weekends. 
However, I was still in Mamma Mia at the time, so I didn't have weekends off. In fact, I had four shows between Saturday and Sunday. So the guys would fly in on, I guess, Friday night. We would start rehearsal at 9 or 10 in the morning. I'd run to a show, come back, rehearse again until my evening show, and then the guys would go get dinner, and we would do that probably twice a month, two or three months. Yeah, two or three months at least. Randy had a little a recorder that we would put together all of these demos as we rehearsed them. We would send those recordings over to Atlantic to see where their head was at, what they would approve, what they wanted us to record. And it, all parties definitely had had some input here, especially since we were nobodies. <laughs> and we were much very beholden to what their thoughts were. We would send over the recordings and they'd say yes, no, and we'd, we'd go from there. Once we had about... 15 songs or so. We booked time back at Airtime Studios in Bloomington, Indiana, back where we recorded everything in college. And we went back there for about three weeks, I guess, and recorded the entire album over the summer. What was interesting for us at the start was Atlantic, I think, didn't really know exactly what to do with us. It was, you know, we were brought in by Craig. And when Craig sent out an email, you know, describing what we were, here's a link to the YouTube video, you know, here's this new group, you know, that got signed. We found out later that one of the project managers wrote back and said, ha you know, Craig, April Fool is not for another couple of months. You know, like they really thought it was not a serious thing. It was like a prank by Craig. I think during the first, you know, recording process, I don't think there was a lot of eyes on us as far as, you know, discriminating what songs we were doing. So I think we, we'd send things in and we kind of heard, yeah, that's great. Works. You know, we didn't we didn't get a lot of negative pushback because I think they weren't quite sure which way we were going to go or how to steer us. So we had, I think, quite a bit of freedom on the first album, which might be unusual for a, a new signing. I think acapella was just mainly a collegiate thing up until that point. I mean, there was no really like professional acapella group. So I'm sure that the label people were like, well, you know, do we have these guys do all originals? Or do we have them do covers or what? We don't know. We don't know what to do here. So we were like the first, you know, acapella group to kind of do this. So it was kind of kind of new for everybody. It's a, Yeah, I think to piggyback on what you're saying, Tyler, this you have to remember the context of when this was. In 2008, this is pre-Pitch Perfect. This is pre the sing-off. The last acapella tunes you had really heard on the radio were Don't Worry, Be Happy, the Boys to Men song, the All for One song. They were much more the one-off songs. It was the one-off songs that were thrown onto an album. Nobody had, certainly nobody mainstream had done a full acapella album. So this was a, a brand new world for maybe it's a brand old world, you know, in terms of it being an old older type of music. But it was it was a return to something that hadn't been done in a long time. All of the above, like we didn't go out and quit our jobs right away. Those of us that were sort of working stiff jobs, because we all kind of assumed that it was going to be a fun, one and done kind of a thing. We put the album together sort of the same way we did in college, which was having a lot of fun doing it, especially back in Bloomington, sort of hitting the old haunts. Well, for me, I, I was still working my job, so I, I had to take two weeks off to go do the record, and I had sublet my place for a couple weeks for the two weeks when we were doing the record. And Jerome and I lived near each other in New York, so we headed to the airport, and our flight was canceled. I couldn't go back to my place because I had sublet it. <laughs> so I was sort of stuck in New York for the night, uh, despite it being where I lived. So I crashed on Jerome's couch, and then we, we flew, to, flew to Bloomington for the start of the record. We were not living in the lap of luxury while we recorded this thing. We were rolling too deep at the Motel 6. Yep. On, no, no, no. On, we had own rooms at the Motel 6. That was a trade-off. I don't think we did. Yes, we did. We absolutely did. We? did. Absolutely did. Okay. Because I took over sort of the business role for the group. I'm curious to know if this is true or not. The only person signed to Atlantic that has an MBA, at least the first. Now Steve is, would be maybe the second. Oh, oh, yes. All right. Well, uh, if anybody wants to fact check that, I'd be curious to know. But at any rate, I took over that role. I had put everybody, I doubled everybody up because we didn't have uh, a whole lot of money, didn't have a big budget for this. But guys suggested that they would prefer to have their own room. So I found the only place that could do it within our budget was Motel was 6. It? And they, yeah, they were not luxurious. No way. $26 a night? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was July Holy. in Bloomington. There's nobody oh, yeah. there. All right. And they gave us a discount because we were there for two weeks. So I think the reg rate was like 50 bucks a night and they bumped oh it down. Gosh. to It was ridiculous. It was gross. There were, uh, I believe, a couple of guys who went and 
bought other kind of blankets and stuff to try to deal with bed bugs and other kind of problems at the hotel. But, you know, we were new to this. And I think, you know, we were issued a check for here's how much you have to to make this record. And all of us were so, you know, thrifty, basically. We we're like, hey, we could let's make this for like one quarter of what this check is worth. Let's cut down every possible cost we can, because the way we viewed it, it was, you know, our money and we didn't want to previously, you know, spend it. And it had to stretch over not just the recording costs and the mixing and the travel for recording, but also had to stretch over travel for rehearsals and those several rehearsal weekends. So we made it work. We had a little bit left over that we then tried to use to uh, for that first promotional tour. But it was it was tight. It was a shoestring budget, to say the least. Nice. I think. Is that not Super 8? <laughs> I don't know. No, that's, that's yeah. Motel 6. Oh. <laughs> what I remember about that same that time period was I was the first to quit my job because I was in sales. And so I would travel. I'd bring my laptop down to record and I'd be working from the studio. And I had a boss who loved to call just like random you know, last last minute meetings, because all of us got to work from home that worked for this company. And he would decide to have these last minute meetings. And he was kind of a not not a great guy. And so when he would call these last minute meetings, it was always at the Hooters by his house, no office to go to no like actual meeting. It was always at Hooters. And it was always like 10 minutes of him giving a, you know, rah-rah speech about, hey, third quarter sales, we're going to, you know, we're going to knock it out of the park, this kind of thing. I was in the studio and get an email saying there's, hey, you know, a meeting tomorrow at 3 p.m. And I'm thinking, do I want to drive five hours back and then five hours back to the studio just for this meeting that I know is going to be worthless. He told me that I had to be there. It was a mandatory meeting. No one can not be at the meeting. I told him I couldn't make it. And he said, uh, well, if you're not going to make it, you'll have to quit. So I wrote back and said, fine, I quit. And then he said, well, you have to come to the meeting then to turn in your laptop. And I said, no, I'll just mail it in. But I was the first to quit because of, of a boss who wanted me to go meet for 15 minutes at Hooters in Chicago. Well, I don't think any stress or any indicator that it was going to be anything at all really happened for at least another year. We had some small indications, like I think we found out through some friends of ours at Atlantic that expectation of that album was to sell around 20,000 copies. And I think we sold 120,000 copies in the first three months. So that sort of Christmas season of 2008, it quadrupled how they thought it was going to perform. You know, we did we did what, eight shows? I think 11. Eleven's what I heard. Yeah, yeah we had a, we had a couple of moments like we were on the cover of the New York Times like art section. I remember all of us were like, "Wow, like this is actually happening." And then on the other spectrum, we end up in Los Angeles for a promo at yeah Barnes and Noble, and they had this oh, yeah. poster of this the album covers like the size of a wall, and all these you know stanchions cordoning off like getting people to wait in line to meet us and stuff. It was a signing table we're all sitting at. I think the only people who came through to meet us were the people who worked in the store that had to do it. And it was one of those kind of like, this is awesome. Oh, wow. Okay. So there was there was always a nice, <laughs> no you know, gut there. check. Yeah, no one there to see us. Hey, that, that homeless guy who came through really seemed interested. <laughs> that was so funny. Early on, I remember standing next to Dan Ponce at a, at a bar in the line to get in, and, and this guy comes up. He's like, hey, man, I know you. And he just goes on and on about, I'm your biggest fan. I love seeing you. Da, 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 da. And Dan's like, oh, really? Where have you seen him? He's like, you do those carpet commercials, right? And it was like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> So there was, there was plenty of that. <laughs> but we did have a, a couple moments, like when we were on the Today Show, I think it was, was it a Sunday or something like that? Yes. As we watched the iTunes charts that day, we briefly popped up to number one and we were going, oh my God, can you believe it? I, I, somewhere there's a screenshot of that, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, we had we had the highs and lows. We experienced both those in 2008. Was that the Today Show appearance where Chaser was coined? It was. It was. Yes. Kathy Lee Gifford. Uh, we were on with Hoda and Kathy Lee. And the way we got onto that one was because one of the, the dressers at the Today Show who dressed Kathy Lee when she was there was a guy who was one of the dressers at Mamma Mia. So when the album came out, Jim, I love Jim to death. I see him every, every time we go to the Today Show. We have a nice little reunion. He gave her one of our CDs and she said, oh, I like these guys. Let's get them on. And so that was how we first came to be on the Today Show, and we've continued to go back there every year. And at, during that interview, Kathy Lee, did she ask if there was a name for our fans? And we said, you know, we probably made a joke about not having any fans. She goes, <laughs> yeah. she goes, well, I'm a chaser or something to that effect. And it, it stuck. So now our fans call themselves chasers. 
So again, like we were all working our day jobs and we tried to record sort of a full length contemporary album that turned out to be our first six pack. And that was in February of 2009. Meanwhile, I'm trying to make my full time job, trying to appear functional at my full time job until we needed They asked us to take a couple weeks off to do a couple songs for like another sort of holiday release. But they liked the song so much they asked for a full length album. And at the same time, we wanted to do a contemporary album as well. So we had the green light for two records. And I had just taken two or three weeks off from my job to do the first part of that and to do the PBS special. And then I went back into my boss and said I needed another two months off to do another record and to do this first big tour that was being planned. And he just kind of looks at me and says, how long have you known about this? And I must have given him a concerned look because he said, no, 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 you mean you're taking me the wrong way. I mean, if you've known about this and you've had time to think about it and digest it and you've talked about it with your family, then you can go, you can go do what you need to do. But if you're just finding out about this, I'm going to send you home so you can think about it. And so, uh, you know, we, we laughed about it and he let me go. Um, not even, didn't even need two weeks notice. And that was when sort of, I jumped into straight no chaser full time end of August, 2009. And that's when we had the request for two records and a full three-month tour planned. But still no guarantees. You know, loving shows, you were in vans, and didn't you owe money? <laughs> we did owe money at the end of the first. It wasn't really a tour, necessarily. It was more like a bunch of promotional stops with a few shows tied in. And it was flights, cheap hotels, and rented minivans. And it was just exhausting. At definitely at the end of it, we were in the hole for some travel expenses. If that was the tour or it was the tour after that, but we were sponsored by Southwest Airlines. <laughs> I, I love Southwest, but it was an awkward uh, setup because we didn't fully know what we were getting into. And we had free flights, but touring with flights rather than tour buses is, is a whole nother thing, a whole another story when you have to get up at, you know, four or five in the morning, catch 6 a.m. flights. But made made even kind of more awkward is going to the airport at that early and then being told, oh, yeah, every time you guys get to the gate, you guys have to do three songs for everyone who's in the waiting area. Somebody in a Southwest like polo shirt would come out. And it was also, you know, this is a couple of years after, you know, 9-11 and those types of things. And so it was kind of awkward because this guy would come out, cup his hands over his mouth and yell, this is straight no chaser, just trying to get everyone's attention for us and then we had to stand there and sing 12 days of christmas and you know two other songs and then of course with their boarding policy you get to stand in line with all these people that you just sang for and it was not a good look for us because i remember people be like oh that's so cute are you guys on a mission trip you know or oh what what school are you guys from it was not at all like oh atlantic records recording artist it, you know i don't think you'd see you know Bruno kind of standing next to the gate doing Locked Out of Heaven for uh, an audience in an airport. That was another thing I remember from that early part. The other thing I was going to mention what Tyler was saying was after that, we went into to record Six Pack. And Six Pack, we were just chomping at the bit to get to record some non-holiday stuff. And I think we weren't fully formed as a group in the sense that we didn't have enough arrangements ready to go to hit the recording studio. We all went to New York, I think it was February or March of uh, 2009. And basically, we're living in subletted New York apartments for that time period. And when we finally finished that recording process, we had, I think, probably 10 or 12 songs done. Craig from Atlanta came back and said, you know, too many of these are copies of the original. He's like, why would I listen to yours if I can listen to Justin Timberlake singing the same song exactly the same way? And that was kind of a, a shot in the arm for us in a good way that motivated us to change how we approached music and approached arranging for the next double album, basically recording session of recording a pop album and Christmas. We knew that we had to put a twist on things and have a reason to do a song differently than the original, which is how we led to the first pop album, uh, which was called With a Twist. Great segue. I don't want to do all the talking, but I think it was kind of a, you know, realizing if you could A, be a recording of us and the original, that's too boring. Set a different tempo, take a different tone, put a, a reggae twist on a song that was never reggae at all to begin with. By slowing songs down or doing them in another artist's style, it really led to much more interesting work. And I think that is why some of our songs that have done well for us, uh, you know, have those twists. Obviously, 12 Days is a complete twist throughout the whole arrangement. But other songs like I'm Yours, adding, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow was really, I think, what made that song stand out from Jason Mraz, his original version. Well, in the like just before that, in the summer, I think, didn't Atlantic kind of help us out with getting Deke involved? That's when the sing-off was sort of 
first yeah. getting going. And I think Pitch Perfect was sort of around that same time too. So they they reached out to Deke and he came in and helped us out with those two albums and spent about a month with us in Bloomington. Shout out to Deke Sharon, Godfather of Acapella. That's right. And then also, I, th- I think right before that was when we did the PBS special that, that August. Yeah, it was your, Tyler's, and yep. Seggy's first gig with us. Talk about Throne to the Wolves. We held a sort of a, a very closed private audition, but we invited some of the alumni from the collegiate group to come and audition for us. The first two guys we wanted couldn't do it, and so we, we took Seggy and Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of the guys, well, Steve had already told us in this interview here that, you know, he had a a little girl on the way and couldn't take the risk on of uh, jumping out there and making no money for a few years while his wife and his new baby girl needed a father around. So Steve had to step aside and Mike Ickoff had, was the only other guy that had a family as well. He had, but yeah. And a good job. Yeah. Golden handcuffs, as he puts it. (laughs) He stepped aside as well. So we needed to replace the two that had departed. And we we looked around and we ended up taking Seggy and Tyler. Uh, All kidding aside, I don't think any of us have ever looked back on that decision. Uh, We couldn't have made a better choice. Those guys have been solid. I appreciate that. Send the 20 bucks. (laughs) David Roberts at gmail.com. I had, uh, you know, of course, followed these guys as they were getting getting signed, which was pretty crazy. I was singing on cruise ships with Charlie, another member, original member, his brother, uh, Luke. We were singing on cruise ships, so he was kind of filling me in on what these guys were doing. And he's like, yeah, Straight Up Chasers is getting signed to a, to a record deal. I was like, this is crazy. This is cool. I mean, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, It'd be cool to one day, you know, do this too. This would be really awesome. And then I got an email from Walt and Dan one day and and uh, they said they wanted to have auditions and the, the rest is kind of history. But it was pretty surreal, you know, just uh, like DR said, you know, the first time we had gotten together with the group was this big nationally televised PBS special that we had to learn all this music uh, in a short period of time and perform this show. It moved very quickly once I joined the group. Well, the next stage was was sort of the intro to our legit touring operation, right? So we're in Bloomington recording what became With a Twist and Holiday Spirits. And when we finished that, we had our tour manager. We met our tour manager. He's from Nashville. His name is Richard Corby. He showed up in a really nice tour bus. And we were all just giddy as can be that here's this amazing tour bus that we all get to ride around on as we go do shows. It was really, really it was something that none of us had ever thought possible. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of that, just a little bit of having sort of, it was just a collegiate reunion for us. Uh, a lot of good friends from college getting back together, doing what we love to do in college and possibly getting paid for it. There was at the time, all 10 of us plus a tour manager on one tour bus and we loved it. <laughs> for us, it was amazing to roll up to places we had never dreamed of playing when we were in college, you know, in the middle of Ohio or driving out to the West Coast and playing, you know, Denver on the way to playing Largo in LA and and having the, the place packed and us just kind of thinking like, how do these people hear of us? Like they really know this Christmas album and they know the new pop album. I mean, that was, I think, really kind of humbling for us to see that the people would would show up for these shows that to places we've never been and our first tour ever, it would really kind of gave us the, uh, the positivity that, you know, Hey, let's really make this work. And that, that led to, I think 2010 and 11 might've been our biggest touring years ever, because even since then we've purposely cut it down ourselves because of our own changes with, you know, everyone being married, everyone has kids now. We've all become more on the same page of what we want out of how much time we're on the road and how much time we're at home. Whereas at the beginning, some guys were still even living at home with their parents and they were like, I want to be on the road all the time. I don't want to be living with my parents. I don't want to buy a place yet. Let's just travel constantly. That wasn't me for sure. (laughs) No, not 24-year-old Tyler. He was living on his own (laughs) (laughs) so that that all led to 2010 which was a really kind of banner year for us because it was our first year that we got booked by harris casino in atlantic city and to do a 40 show run so that was our first real production show where we had set pieces that moved and we had costume changes and choreographer and all sorts of things that we had not really experienced before but it was great for us because it was like a three-month boot camp of performing and rehearsing and you know running things every day with input from people outside of our immediate group that told us, you know, this looks great. This sounds great. These things don't look good. These things don't sound good. And I think that really ramped us up into 
to be able to do a professional touring act for the last you know decade now. I couldn't agree more, Randy, that we don't give Harris enough credit for allowing us and giving us the opportunity to become the act that we are now. Like the ability to have a show every night, it, it was like a laboratory for us, right? We could try out new jokes, try out new things. And then we really found a show that we were able to do 40 times. But without that, without that stability and being able to go out and perform for an audience that didn't know us, so we had to go out and win over a new crowd, a new casino crowd every night, I think really helped us mature as a group. And without those gigs uh, those two summers, I have a hard time seeing us where we are now. I'll just say, like, as far as audiences go throughout the country, you know, we've, we've done this for a while. Casino crowds are probably the hardest just because they have so many preferred VIP players that they give away all these tickets to. So they're just, oh, I got these tickets in my room. I'll, I'll I guess I'll go check out this show. So it's, it's a lot of people that have really never seen us before, have really never heard about acapella so those i would say some of those crowds are are probably the toughest and i remember that first summer where you know we're trying to do the most entertaining show we could and it and it took us a while to kind of kind of to kind of get it going and realize okay these are just people that have gotten free tickets they may not like it but that's that's okay too Yeah, they might walk in six songs into the show or leave four songs before it's over. Or the first two rows are completely empty. A lot of those fans are still with us. Yeah. That that come to see shows all across the country and even worldwide in some cases. Sometimes when they don't know who you are, they're just there to have a good time. And that forces us to have a looseness about the show. Absolutely right. Develop that like kind of rat packy, making fun of ourselves, making fun of what's going on in the theater, people leaving, whatever it was, because... We had to kind of keep ourselves entertained doing the same show for, you know, 40 nights. It allowed us to to discover how to be loose on stage, but still do the show we're supposed to do. Holiday Spirits being our first record now, having been out for 10 years, it's gone gold. It's incredible to think that we've been able to do this now for 10 years. And what still gets me every year is when we're doing a show afterwards, we go out into the lobby and we sign autographs. I hear a mom or, a, you know, some siblings come through the line and talk about how Holiday Spirits and now some of the other records that we've done have become their holiday traditions. And that really always gets me emotional because there were two or three final records that my sisters and I used to listen to every year. And we knew the lyrics to every track, every song, front and back. And it wasn't really the holiday season until we got those records out. So knowing that holiday spirits is now that for untold number of other families is really something special for me. I can agree with that. I think about to my childhood and Christmas and listening to like Nat King Cole or Andy Williams or something where you know those vinyl records so well that one song ends and you know exactly what key and what song is coming in next like it doesn't sound right unless you you hear that next song it's like you had to listen to the whole album because one song wasn't enough you had to know the whole progression and to have kids come through and say well i heard this song and i really thought this song was coming next because that's how it is on the cd it was like oh that's like that's how i remember my christmas albums growing up so that is a big uh thrill for all of us i think to know that the christmas album especially that first one affected people so so positively Well, when we were making it, it was like 95 degrees and humid in Bloomington in the middle of July. So it wasn't exactly a Christmas vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Tyler. We did a lot of like pre Tyler's. (laughs) That's all good. Being in the group. So if if you want to jump in and talk about making Christmas records in the heat of July. Well, we've definitely taken Christmas in July to a new level. I mean, we've done however many Christmas albums in July, but it's, you know, you're kind of used to it now, but yeah, the first time, the first time that you do it, if you're, you know, getting ready to do a song and it's, you know, you got to sing, you know, the holidays are here or whatever the jingle bells, jingle bells. And you're like, wait, it's only July. I'm, I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt and I got to go and record these songs about cold weather and snow and holidays and stuff. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's takes some, takes a little bit to get used to. Chestnuts roasting on an open yeah, fire as I'm standing there in shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> back in 2008, when we were recording, we, we had everybody out at the studio all the time, all hands on deck, just ready to go at a moment's notice. So one of the things we did was we played a lot of cornhole, just the game, throwing the bags. And one day the guys in the studio, they they kept hearing something. It was coming through on the recording and they tried to isolate it. They could not figure They were walking around the studio after they'd finally, you know, hit stop 
and walked outside, they realized that it was the cornhole bags hitting the board that was bleeding through into the studio <laughs> on the recordings. They said, can you guys just, just not or move it or something? We said, oh, sorry. So we're just ruining takes by playing cornhole <laughs> outside in July in Bloomington and calling it work. Is that when we started with two buses? I forget when we, we made that. We switched to two buses when we had lighting and... I don't remember. Because <laughs> we, we had one bus for a while there with... Uh, with our merch guy. Who we called Merch. <laughs> Kyle Tolbert. Shout out to Kyle Tolbert. First tour that I was on, it was one bus and 12 people on there. So I remember getting up for, for TV and stuff it was hectic and everybody moving around. But then, yeah, we wised up and, and bit the bullet and got two buses, which was much more comfortable. I know us poor artists, two tour buses. Well, I let you guys do the roughing of it. And then I came back in 2013 <laughs> when you moved into two, two buses. Bigger, we had bigger bunks and everything. And oh my gosh, our lives are so bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how you can complain about touring around on million dollar tour buses eventually you're like, oh man, this is this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> These limos. I can't sleep. I've got to go in the back lounge and watch all the satellite TV. <laughs> oh man. There's a there's a running joke in our group when someone just says, These limos, which comes back to Harrah's when they would take us to different events or they took us up to New York to do the to National Anthem for the Mets games, but they'd always take us in limos. Although limos were really cool to ride in, you know, ten guys in there was a little bit <laughs> was a little bit uncomfortable. So somebody once time said, Man, we had to ride in those limos again. And somebody's like, Yeah, really? You're complaining about a limo? <laughs> At that period of time, it starts to get all jumbled together because we're doing tours, sometimes as many as 90 shows, particularly in the fall. But then we'd get a couple of weeks off and then we'd go do 20 shows and then we get a couple of months off. You know, and during that time, we all have gotten engaged and married and now we all have kids. So what we thought was going to be something that lasted maybe a year or just one record, you know, we've taken that one shot now and dragged it out for 10 years and we're actively working on uh, making it last as long as possible. I think one of the things we do is, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have those two Christmas albums do really well where the fall to, you know, first part of the year timeline has been touring. And I think, you know, each year we try to make our live show, you know, a little bit different than the last, you know, whether that's new songs or, you know, new jokes. We usually try to make a video before each show um, and make that, you know, kind of humorous and something that the audience can have fun with. But that's something that I think we always strive to do each year is to how can we make this fall tour or this fall show better than the last and have, you know, a wide range of ages in our shows and for it to be as entertaining as possible. Yeah, one of the hallmarks of our show, I believe, is that it appeals to multiple generations, especially during the fall tour. We'll have four generations come through the signing line at a show and saying, we can all have something that we know, have something that we enjoy. There are very few shows out there that appeal to all of us. So that's one of the things we definitely take into consideration when we're structuring any of our shows or albums. So as we were putting together the ideas of what we wanted to do with this latest album, uh, we came up with the idea since it's, you know, kind of the 10 year anniversary of us reforming, why not try to tell the story of Straight No Chaser through music? And so we spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year focusing on the things we wanted to musicalize, the different aspects of what we've been through as a group, whether it be starting in Indiana back in the late 90s, whether it be uh, going our own ways after we left school, graduated, went in to find jobs, finding our soulmates, you know, getting married, having kids, all those little aspects of what we've been through in the last 10 years. How do, how do we musicalize them and tell the story through a cohesive album? That was the fun task of, of One Shot. I think Steve summed it up really well. We've done this several times now where we've either been given a concept or we've been told we need to come up with a concept for an album. We always struggle with that idea. For some reason with this one being 10 years, just the idea of trying to be more of a storytellers with the album and the concept and have the story be a bunch of guys that were friends in college that got this opportunity and are still giving it our best shot to try to make a CD that tells that story. It's been a lot of fun. And I think too, we tried to have a group of songs that could one stand alone by themselves. Like if you just wanted to listen to that song, but also if you looked at the entirety of the album, tell the story, you know, of the group, like Steve was talking about and tell each milestone in our group and how we've, you know, since started from college and now have come here, you know, 10 years later, that's kind of how we decided to do the songs that we did. And it's an interesting task to undertake. You're trying to tell 
personal, you're trying to tell professional, you're trying to put in all these different things. And how do you tell, you know, multiple guys stories with one song? So it was a lot of give and take, a lot of discussion, just spending a lot of time on conference calls and, and looking at spreadsheets and, and then going mm-hmm. to the internet and doing your Google searches for, all right, what are the top 25 songs that express this sentiment or that have musicalized in the past these moments and picking then from those what relates to us and how you can best translate that to acapella. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the process. We committed to this concept backstage, I think our South Bend show last December. Fort Wayne? Yeah. We've been committed to this concept and have been actively working on putting a lineup of songs that does all those things that Steve said. It tells the story, professional, personal, collegiate, the whole thing. And also our interesting songs that you want to hear both standalone or in this timeline. So it's been a labor of love to say the least. And as we sit here in mid-August, we're finally starting to get the mixes coming through and hearing what the final products will be. It's, it's really exciting to see that come together. And the other thing that I'm having fun with on this record is we're also having a little fun with the album cover. In the art, we're going to have a lot of little symbolic things here and there that represent a lot of these different points along our path as well. So I've been having fun. I think we all have been having fun coming up with ideas of little things or a trinket to put on the table or something to have strewn on the floor, a piece of art in the background that's really going to help bring people along and hopefully the audience will get a kick out of looking for the different things and wondering what the story is. They started recording, you know, where it all started in Bloomington, Indiana. And since then, we've recorded in several different locations, Nashville, Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, and some really, really, really cool studios that a lot of awesome people have recorded in. And we've seen some of them, which was also pretty cool. I think it's been about two years that we've now since gone back to Bloomington and and recorded back at the same place that we did in college because we liked working out there so much that we decided to go back. And at Airtime Studios in Bloomington, there are two gold records on the album. They're just both ours. (laughs) (laughs) We've recorded in some pretty famous studios from New York to Nashville to LA. And we found that we are most comfortable and we get at least a similar result in Bloomington. We just enjoy going back to Bloomington and recording there. It's also cheaper. It's way cheaper. And they're the creature comforts. When when we record, again, when we're recording these holiday albums and things like that in the middle of July, that's when there are no students there. So we can find housing really easily. It's nice to have a full kitchen at your disposal instead of just eating out for two or three weeks at a clip. So all the little things that go together to making the entire experience a little more comfortable. The downside is we're not recording in places where Bruno Mars has Studio A, like when we were in Glenwood Place. (laughs) Bumped into him when we were done and was so starstruck that I literally couldn't put any words together to say anything to him and basically just walked away from him. One of the most embarrassing moments of my professional career. Just <laughs> wanted, wanted to get that out. Shout out, to, hey, shout out to Bruno. Bruno walked through, and then a few minutes later, like Pharrell is sitting at like a table over from us <laughs> in the outdoor area. Then Nelly came in. I was like, oh, this is a little parade in here. It's like, just, you know, who else is going to walk into these doors? Sometimes it's those moments you look at yourself and like, what is happening right now? I definitely <laughs> turned to the engineer and said that there never had been a greater dichotomy between what was going on at Studio A and what was going on at Studio B. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it was, I'm trying to think of the name of the studio out in, in LA. We were doing a tracking and I walked into the room next door while we were just kind of wasting some time. And I walked in, I was like, I feel like I've seen this room before. And I'm like, have you seen it in a video? Or it was where uh, We Are the World was recorded. It was Henson. Yeah. Yeah. It was Henson. And then I came, it came out and I was sitting on this little bench just to get out of the studio and, you know, listen to some silence for a change and sit in the hallway. And this woman sat down next to me and sat there for probably an hour. She was reading a magazine. I was reading something on my phone, I think. Looked up and she said, Oh, you know, have a good day and walked away. And I was like, That was Mary J. Blige sitting there for an hour. <laughs> Didn't even pay attention. We may only have Thanks for listening to What I'd Say presents Straight No Chaser One Shot. To hear the rest of the episode, subscribe on your favorite podcast player or head to AtlanticPodcast.com for more info on our shows. One Shot is out on November 2nd, and the reissue of Holiday Spirits is out November 16th. 